Ladies and gentlemen, we've missed you over the last couple of weeks, and we would like to welcome you back to the draft board over our uh, little hiatus in April. Hope everyone's been doing well out there. Hope no one got pranked too hard at the top of the month. <laughs> Just kidding. We're still in COVID. That's a real prank here. Oh. But it's not funny. No, it's not. Nonetheless, we are back with another episode here at the draft board, and we are excited to have you guys tuning in, and girls, of course, whether you're tuning in in the morning, afternoon, evening, or unreasonably late at night, we appreciate that's, that's you. That's my favorite. Way. I'm the I'm the type of person that listens to podcasts between two and five a.m. <laughs> I sleep during those hours, just for the record. <laughs> Anyways, we are also excited today because we have our second guest star of our podcast's young existence. And that, of course, is the gentleman sitting on my right-hand side. Cam Coates, for those of you who don't know him, is a very old friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. Cam, how are you doing? Doing very well. I'm actually really happy to be here, guys. I really appreciate you inviting me. It's good. Um, it's just, it's an awesome experience. I've been listening to the podcast, really get into it. It's got a nice back and forth which I think really makes for um, kind of a personal podcast. I don't quite listen to them from 2 to 5 like you do, That's but fine. I listen to it when I'm on my way to work, working, anything like that, and it's, uh, yeah, it's great. I'm really happy to be here. Mm -hmm. we, are, we are happy to have you, Cam, and without further ado, let's just get right into this. Oh, actually, no, before we get right into this, I also have to shout out one of uh, your friends, Cam, uh, Josie Hollis, someone that you recommended our, our show to and you just told us uh, before we went live here that she's been enjoying it so far so i mean hey josie we have not spoken to each other in a very long time but hope you're doing well and for you and everyone else who tunes in every week or even if you're way behind we really appreciate everyone that takes time to listen to our show even if it's just for a little bit and listen to what we have to say and join in our conversations now, without further ado, Tyson, why don't you open us up with our customary feel-good story of the week? Thanks, David. Yeah, I got a feel-good story for everybody here this week. It comes from the NFL side of things, specifically the upcoming draft. We have the draft coming up on Thursday, so next week's podcast, we'll definitely be talking a little bit about the NFL draft, kind of who went where and that sort of stuff. We'll talk a little bit about it later on today, hopefully, as well. So. But anyways, one of these guys who is going to be drafted probably around the first, second round is this guy, his name is Jalen Phillips. So just to give you a little bit of a brief understanding of Jalen Phillips, he was a five-star prospect coming out of uh, high school. He was an outside linebacker, defensive end. He was really good at getting to the quarterback and sacking the quarterback. Right, so in other words, one of those modern 3-4 hybrid pass rusher types. For sure. Like his, he was getting scholarships in the 10th grade, you know, to Division One schools. Un incredibly good, like incredibly gifted. ESPN had him tied for the first best player that recruit. He was ranked kind of third in some other places. So really good player, really good uh, kind of a guy. You know, he grew up with some musically inclined parents, like they were both musicians, and he traveled the world and that sort of stuff. So he also had a passion for music, which kind of picks up later on. And he decided that he was going to commit to UCLA. So. He committed to UCLA in his freshman year. He gets three and a half sacks in six games, which is pretty good. But unfortunately, then he got a concussion, mm. and that ended his freshman year a, a little bit prematurely. Uh, 
And then Jalen Phillips experienced a second concussion actually that off season. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got into a car accident. He was actually riding his scooter wow. when a car hit him and struck him. Mm. And he left like a, a human sized dent in the fender of the car. Oh, so wow. it broke. I his, mean, and he's a big man too. He's probably fairly sized uh, dent. Superhuman sized dent. Six four, two forty, right? And, and he gets go. thrown off. And you know, he broke his arm and he also recorded his second concussion. Now he comes back in the in the off season a little bit later into the season, trying to impress the new head coach, which is Chip Kelly, former head coach of the Eagles, and unfortunately he gets his third concussion uh, in two years in UCLA. So it's really tough for him as an athlete. So interestingly enough, there was a lawsuit filed against UCLA, UCLA uh, specifically under the previous head coach who had recru- recruited Jalen Phillips, and the the lawsuit was that you know there were players who were being forced into contact drills in practice and actually playing in games while still experiencing concussion-like symptoms. So basically what was happening is that this coach was kind of forcing players to play even though they were still hurt and forcing players to play through pain. So that's what this lawsuit Mm. is about. So when we kind of look a little bit at Jalen Phillips' career, there was some kind of some history and controversy of, of concussions going on at UCLA before Chip Kelly got there. So what happened, I, I'm not sure if it was because of this lawsuit or this incident or if this was a long-standing rule, but at the UCLA, uh, the school has a policy that if you get three concussions, you have to medically retire from sports. So like you can't come back, this is different than a medical redshirt where if a player breaks his leg in the first or second game of the year, then you can apply for a medical redshirt, you gain an extra year of college eligibility, you can come back and you can play football or or the sport you were in the next year. No, with with medical redshirt, or sorry, medical um, retirement, you have to, it's supposedly this be, it's an incident that you can't come back from. That's basically what it's for, is that you're expected not to be able to play. Now, miraculous comebacks can be approved, um, and under the situation, the player doesn't lose scholarship, so to speak, but the school does not have to keep that player on their roster, and it doesn't count against their athletic scholarships. So the player, even though has to medically retire, still gets to have the full benefits of the education. So what happened after this is Jalen Phillips kind of had to go through a little bit of a soul-searching type of uh, life story, and he eventually decided that he was going to pursue another passion, which is music. You know, his parents are both musicians, so he went to the L.A. Community College, and he actually got a certificate in audio engineering. He was very uh, successful in this field. And, you know, he was, you know, really good at helping producing music and being a part of iHeartRadio, but he still had that desire for football. Mm -hmm. So after, you know, kind of a year at community college, there were some other head coaches that kind of got in contact with him and said, hey, are you still interested in playing football? And Jalen Phillips, you know, he kind of thought about it and he was like, yeah, I I really want to get back into football. And after choosing kind of maybe looking at Stanford or USC, he eventually chose University of Miami because of their music program to go back and play football. The U, if I'm not the mistaken. The U. So uh, he goes to Miami, sits out the first year just as a redshirt year to get his muscle mass. He had to put on another 50 pounds in order to play football again. And in this past year, he was kind of expected to be a defensive lineman in and out, kind of a rotational player, kind of a third down pass, pass rush specialist. Yeah, yes. that kind of a guy. But because of the pandemic, another player who's going to get drafted, Gregory Rousseau, opted out this year. So Jalen Phillips gets a starting role. So in 10 games this year, Jalen Phillips had eight sacks, Mm. 15 and a half TFLs, tackles for loss, and the most important thing, no injuries. 
So Jalen Phillips, he's, wow. he's expected to go in the first two rounds of this draft, late first, kind of in that second round, and hopefully he has a very good career and that he stays healthy. So, Well, that's, that's a fantastic comeback story so far. I think we all understand how hard concussions in particular are to come back from and also how subjective they are, right? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, every person who gets concussion is deeply affected by it, but we, we can't overstate the fact that Jalen Phillips is the exception, not the rule here. Three concussions in a short span of years, it's very hard to come back from mm-hmm. when playing high-level sports is concerned. You know, Cam used to play high school football, and you, know, you were telling us about uh, a couple of gruesome injuries that your teammates went through. Yeah, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. There's actually um, one of our players uh, that we had, I won't name his name, of course, um, mm-hmm. but he was our middle linebacker, um, the actual uh, number, I remember in one game he had seven sacks. No. Us. Yes. That's so he many. Was, That's wow. so good. You wanted wow. a blitz, he was there. So <laughs> he was just incredible. And just the way he, he controlled, he was through those A-gaps, huh? Yeah, he was right up the middle. You know, and it was, it was just unfortunate because it was our senior year. And the very first game of our senior year, um, as he was doing, he chased down, you know, five yards, got pushed up. He went right to the sidelines, right where the chains were, met up with this guy, grabbed him, pulled him down, went down really awkwardly, though. And his leg basically snapped into tibula and fibula. They're supposed to look like a diamond. Ended up looking like a squiggly line. Wow. It was, it was really horrendous. So, you know, it's, but it's a typical football play. It, you don't expect it, um, mm-hmm. that there's definitely that risk involved. But, you know, mentioning about concussions... Mm-hmm. Um, there was a player who actually I played with his name again I will not mention but he uh, played with us for the first two years and again in senior year mm-hmm. uh, he had to actually basically f- mm-hmm. hang up the cleats he couldn't play anymore because he had two concussions in the preseason oh wow um, and you know it's unfortunate because coach kept saying you gotta when you're you can't be driving with your head down mm-hmm. it's gonna come back to get you Ryan Shazier found that out the hard way too he did so it is unfortunate but you know that's that's the thrill of it, but there is always a downside. But right, that was again. Thank you for sharing that story. That was awesome. But and, and I think I speak for everyone when I say good luck, Jalen. Take care mm-hmm. of your body, and we hope you have a successful career in the NFL, and that you're able to make a lot of money and, and play this game and provide for yourself and your family, mm-hmm. considering what you've gone through. Now, before we move on, I it sort of occurs to me, Cam, that the people don't know that much about you like we briefly kind of introduced you and it was kind of a a belated thought i was sort of raring to get started but just to be clear you don't play football anymore i don't uh so so where are you from and what are you doing with your life now so uh, born and raised calgary um really really blessed uh i'm actually a third generation calgarian there's not a lot that are out there today wow. which is mm-hmm. awesome and it even goes back to five generations for alberta so wow. we're, we're a very canadian family and it's awesome but uh yeah don't play football anymore except for on the weekends with a few friends sure. if we can you know pass the ball around but, i know what uh, you mean yeah but uh no it's good i uh, i work as a courier for dhl express 
um, delivering packages out there. Doesn't sound very exciting. It's not the most exciting. <laughs> but in a pandemic, it suddenly becomes way more important than anyone ever thought. It's I never thought services. I'd be a frontline worker. You know, it's <laughs> it's something uh, very very interesting on that aspect. But mm-hmm. I do have to break the news to everyone here, um, as there is a Leafs fan that is very present oh here. Oh my gosh! I, well, actually, I, I I'm feigning surprise for our audience. <laughs> I. There's a there was an ulterior motive of Tyson and I inviting this gentleman on on our on our show this episode and why don't you tell the people what that reason is? I bleed red for the Montreal Canadiens. Ah. You know it's uh, such a historic franchise that did all the winning not while I was alive unfortunately <laughs> I was born in 1994 the last cup was 93 so I don't blame myself as being the sole reason that they haven't won a cup but you know it's. It's, it's a reason. It's a reason to say the <laughs> least, you know. So it's out there now. I you know, I, uh, a, dis- a disclaimer to those of you listeners out there: if midway through this broadcast you just start to hear uh, sounds of scuffling and things breaking, please dial nine one one. Because don't these two actually. gentlemen are both. Don't a lot... actually. Don't actually. No, do I'm that. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is both these guys are a lot bigger than I am, and I. Uh, <laughs> As a Flames fan, I kind of caught in the middle of this rivalry, so... It can only mediate so much before it gets out of hand. Yes, right? but mm-hmm. obviously we're, we're, uh, we're joking, and we also don't plan to stage any audio-only fights on this show. At, that's this, not, point. at this point in time, that's not what we <laughs> are doing here, but thanks for telling everyone a bit about yourself, Cam. Like I said, we... Actually, yeah, you and I have known each other, what pushing 10 years at this point yeah 10 actually no it was because we met at camp evergreen yes in 2011 it's uh again i i I told i told you guys about this in the first episode introducing myself but this bible camp in southern alberta hour and change outside of calgary is a place that really helped make me who i am today Mm -hmm. and while not everyone listening is a is a christian or a follower of christ it I'll tell you what, it's a place that, and right, like honestly, I'm obligated to do a little bit of a tangent, a little bit of a plug here once again, <laughs> but you know what, it's a place that was just so welcoming, working there really taught me how to, honestly, mm. taught me how to be a man, taught me how to be a teammate, uh, taught me to work hard, and those are all things that I'm taking forward now into my sports journalism career in different ways, and Cam, we met there, I was in high school, you were, had you had been a staff member there for quite some time, and we both stuck around this place so long that we have worked together, we have led youth group together yep. at church, and you know it's just it's just very special that uh, in this weird time we're able to come together once again and you know and talk sports, and that's something that we we all love, and Tyson you as well. So, mm-hmm. anyways, personal news aside, let's talk about hockey and. I have a feel-good story as well, although it's not so much of a traditional feel-good story as it is just an immensely fun factoid from the world of hockey, and I will, I'll share that with you folks now before we get into the meat of our first topic. So, Sportsnet aired a, aired a couple of graphics over the course of the Calgary Flames-Montreal Canadiens game yesterday, that would have been this Monday, and so the first graphic is fairly fairly standard. It's talking about Flames goaltender Jacob Markstrom and the number of goals he's allowed in the last 12 games and where he allowed them, what quadrant of the net. 
no one scored on his five hole in the last 12 games. That's pretty good. Okay. Conversely, he's been most vulnerable. High blocker, 14 goals gone up there. High glove, he's allowed seven goals there. Low glove, three goals. Low blocker, five goals. That's sort of been the recent shot chart on him. And obviously, every goaltender will vary. And this is very, you know, it's very, very subjective. It depends on not only your natural skills as a goalie, but also who you're facing, what game plan they're employing against you. And of course, the ever fickle puck luck. What ends up going in the net versus what you somehow pad stack on. Right. So then they, however, turn their attention to Kelly Rudy, who is a former NHL goaltender. He is now a color commentator on Hockey Night in Canada and Sportsnet. This this gentleman is 60 years of age, an Edmontonian, and he played from 1981 to 1998 for the New York Islanders, Los Angeles Kings, and San Jose Sharks. Now, if you love hockey and if you are acquainted from the past, or rather with the past that hockey came from, you will know that in the uh, in the 80s and 90s it was decidedly easier to score goals than it is now. And yeah, I mean, you know, Gretzky had a lot of goals in that era, and I don't want to take anything away from that, but. The pads were small, and the nets were big. <laughs> the pads were small, the nets were big, and most goaltenders played this very anarchic, stand-up style of goaltending, in which instead of covering their angles like they would in today's game, it's a lot of raw athleticism, kind of almost backyard hockey, kind of flailing... <laughs> Dominic Hasek is the master of this and will always be the king in this department. You mean to say that Grant Fuhr didn't have amazing technical skills? <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that, that, that claim. Anyways, anyways, again, just for, for those of our listeners who aren't uh, super knowledgeable about hockey, the point is that it was decidedly much easier to score goals in the 80s and 90s than it is now, and... Again, there were some incredibly talented, legendary players in, the, in, those, in, that, in those eras, but at the same time, it was just a, a goaltending style thing. It's a game style thing that has evolved a lot since then. Anyways, Kelly Rudy, who played in this era, allowed 2,174 goals oh, Kelly. in his career, which is... Uh, it's a bit. It's a bit. We're not... There's no context attached to this, but still, it's a bit. Here, however, is the breakdown of, of the quadrants of the net that he was vulnerable in. And keep in mind, this is an entire career. Yeah. High glove. Tyson, guess how many goals he's let in ever uh, high glove. Out Just of 2,000? Out of the 2,000 odd. I don't know. 300? One. No. One? One. <laughs> Low glove. Give me another. Give me another. 500. Guess. One. No. High blocker. <laughs> one? It's it's one. Low blocker. Come on, last guess, man. One. And two thousand one hundred and seventy-three five hole. No way. No. There's this no way. Is close up that five hole. It's button. freakish. <laughs> it's this is arcadish. I mean, it's not even arcadish. You probably couldn't replicate this in NHL twenty one if you tried for hours and hours and hours. That has it to is, be, that has to be a meme. It can't be real. I don't well, listen, it's, all I can tell you, and that Cam can verify this, it showed up on a Sportsnet broadcast, so either they're messing with everyone, 
or this was a truly odd turn of events over close 20 years for this, this I mean, beloved goaltender. Kelly Rudy was also on the on the sports casting. Like, he, he was there. <laughs> so, unless he would have made his own sort of sadistic joke against himself. Oh, boy. It, oh, man. This is... Uh, poor Kelly. Poor Kelly. <laughs> hashtag the more you know. That's really what I can say about <laughs> a bizarre factoid such as this one. And we, we, we hope that we hope that y'all out there are as befuddled by this as, as we are. Now, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, it is time... For the main event of the evening, it is time for the uh, the pay-per-view that y'all have tuned in for. Although this is a free show, so that's great. So it's not really a pay-per-view, but the free for view. Uh, on one hand, <laughs> yeah, there free, you go. Free, free for listen, I guess. Free for listen. Uh, it's on Spotify. May, maybe we should maybe we should trademark that. Anyways, okay. Get our own T-shirts. <laughs> Hey, our show gets successful enough. We're gonna need some T-shirts and some uh, some some merchandise. There we go. Some logos, but. Anyways, without further ado, like I said, the main attraction of the evening, in the red corner, literally and otherwise, we have Cam Coates standing roughly six feet tall, weighing a number of pounds over 200 that I won't specify. 245? Oh, honesty. You know what? I like that. All right. Anyways, standing at six feet even, weighing 245 pounds in the red corner, Cam Coates representing the Montreal Canadiens. And over here in the literal blue corner, standing six feet, four inches tall, weighing probably about 240 pounds as well. Maybe a couple pizzas on top of that. Maybe a couple pizzas on that. (laughs) I'm gonna say, t- listen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna say 248, and we're gonna leave it at that. Thanks. Leave is it. is uh, <laughs> is Tyson Warkington, and for the next little while, these two gentlemen are gonna treat you to a unmoderated, mostly impromptu conversation about the state of the Toronto Maple Leafs this year versus the state of the Montreal Canadiens this year, and I'm going to sit here and play the Ron McLean role and essentially act like... Uh, nothing's happening act to Act like nothing's happening to me, and I will occasionally say a few words. Take it away, gentlemen. Okay, well, I will start off with this. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Calgary, we have the Fan uh, 960. In Montreal, it's the Fan 690. It's uh, slightly mm-hmm. different, of course. Interesting fact there. I listen to the radio quite frequently, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the how I'm going to start this conversation off. With the lead-off, they led with this phrase. The Montreal Canadiens could not have picked a worse time to meet up with the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> Hearing that statement, what is your first thought on that? I mean, yeah, it sounds pretty accurate. You know, like, the Leafs are finally, they're coming out of their slump this season. Like, as a whole, they, they suffered and they struggled a little bit. They got mad and they got beat, like they, they got beat two in a row against the COVID Canucks, and then Ugh. and then <laughs> right <laughs> like like any anytime it's an emotional game for the other team and it's against the Leafs, you know the Leafs are gonna lose. So like <laughs> like you just that's do. an interesting statement. Right? So the Leafs they lose two to Vancouver right out of quarantine, and then they're mad, and then they play the Jets and they beat the Jets. And they played very well, and now they're coming on a break here. And now we get a whole bunch of games against, you know, you guys. So in the season complex, you know, right now is not a very nice time to probably be playing the, the Leafs. But also, 
usually, like you said beforehand, before the we started recording, you only play about four or five games a year against us. But now because of the division, the North Division, you get to play us nine times, ten times? Ten times. Ten times, and I'm looking forward to it. And just for, just for some context for our audience out there, Maple Leafs have five wins, three losses, and two overtime or shootout losses in their last ten. So overall, the numbers are in their favor. They are atop the North Division. Overall, 30 wins, 13 losses, five overtime losses, 65 points will put them seven ahead of the Edmonton Oilers for the division lead as of Tuesday morning. Montreal, meanwhile, has been treading water down in this number four spot. They have lost six of their last 10, <laughs> 21-17 and nine overall, although they, you know what, they did win a big one over my Flames last night that gives them a bit of breathing room and I have some grievances to air about that a little later. Nonetheless, these two teams have gone in differing directions this year. To say the least, you know, it's it's been a rough ride because coming out of the beginning of this season, you know, you see the acquisitions and the loading up. Montreal actually spent their cap space, which was wow. huge. Wow. I know. <laughs> Imagine a million, a billion dollar franchise actually spending money on players. Imagine the most tight-fisted GM finally being like, let's go. And it's all <laughs> out there. And signings like Jake Allen, which a lot of people are like, you got almost $15 million in goaltending. And I say, you know what? Look where Carey Price is right now. He's not rushing to come back. Mm-hmm. He's had injuries. He... Since 2017, he's been struggling with those injuries. That's not going to change. Mm-hmm. They address the goaltending situation. They bring up a guy who is a bona fide number one goaltender before he lost his job to Jordan Bennington, yes. which he actually did win back in the last playoff series that St. Louis played. So um, Jake Allen has been great for us. Um, players like Josh Anderson, Tyler Toffoli, fantastic outings for us. Joel Edmondson. Who currently still another former blue that took his game to the next blue. level? Exactly. Who I believe, last I saw, might be down now, but Joel Edmondson was still leading the league in plus minus. Mm. Um, we got mm. a fact check on that. And we'll have to see. Um, so plus. all these things let up, you know, and mm. we come to the beginning of the season, and Montreal just goes on a tear. Mm. Montreal in the in February is averaging 5.1 goals per game, which is Unbelievable. That is a lot of offense. Going into, they still had about 4.5 goals again. We're just, and Montreal has not been offensive. No. Unless your name is Brendan Gallagher, you're not scoring. And that's usually what happens. Say for Thomas Tatar having a career year last year. Wait, do you mean to tell me that old Eric Stahl can no longer be relied upon as a top offensive threat? He got a goal in his overtime debut, and that uh, has been all he's produced. Congratulations. Fun fact with Eric Stahl, unfortunately, he's still doing better statistically than he was with Buffalo, uh, but he, in the games following that overtime winning game, he had a minus six and nothing else to show. Oh, for it. minus six. Mm. Um, saying that, it was a bit of a tough stretch. Unfortunately, Montreal does not match up well against the Daryl Sutter system, which they should be getting comfortable in closer games because realistically, Montreal will be in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Don't know how long they'll be there for. Um, but I'm just holding on to what they did last year against Pittsburgh. Mm. Um, that's, that's the thing, right? If you have a healthy carry price, you never know. You never know. You never know. And unless Kerry throws a total stinker, lays an egg in the playoffs, I can still hold on to that. <laughs> um, for those of you who may not be familiar, as David mentioned earlier with the NHL, 
Pittsburgh was expected to just roll over Montreal last year. There was a different format. Um, Montreal was the 24th team who just barely snuck into the playoffs. Literally the last team. Literally the last team. Did not deserve to be there whatsoever. The very first game, Pittsburgh outshot Montreal in the first period, 20-6. to 0-0 going into the second period. Yeah. And that was, that was Price putting up the force That was field. Price putting up the force field being incredible. The reason we won that playoff series was purely because of Carey Price. So as you said, with a healthy Carey Price, anything's possible, and it's good. Now, I have some more numbers to throw at you. I'm ready. Okay? Explain to me this. The Leafs last year had a almost, this is incredible, their power play last year, their whole season, was 31.7%, which is... Almost the best. The only other better power play in history was, of course, the 77 Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> Having the blonde demon on their team really helped out with that one. So, um, this year things have taken a dip, <laughs> to say the least. No kidding. Uh, in the, if we go back to March 11th, dating a span of 18 games, Toronto is officially a league-worst le- league two for 46 on the power play. That's otherworldly and not in a good way. <laughs> I just uh, was wondering, you watch the Leafs on a nightly basis. Mm-hmm. What has been, uh, what's your angle on this? Yeah, no kidding. So uh, for context, uh, one of those two goals was on a five-minute major, which came at the four-minute and 20-second of that five-minute major. So Just barely. Just barely sneaking into that five-minute power play. The other one... The Leafs had given up a shorthanded goal. <laughs> and so essentially they were just getting it back. Essentially it was just a, okay. oh, we gave up one, now we got to go get one back. Wow. <laughs> so oh, for boy. a team with Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, John Tavares, even at his advanced age, Joe Thornton in that kind of a setting. Wayne Jason, Simmons. Wayne even. Simmons. TJ Brody, Morgan Riley. Although, Tyson, we were talking about this the other day, and you said something to me that I thought mm-hmm. had some merit, is that it's it's mental. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes, just as in the case with every sport, confidence can come and go. And when you run into adversity, sustained adversity like this, you are telling me that sometimes it's just it snowballs and do you think that's been happening here and that might be a factor yeah i really think so i think it's confidence i really do like you get going like okay you give up a shorthanded goal and then you get one back like nobody is on that power play going yes we're killers you know we did so good no that's just <laughs> not what's the confidence they're hanging their head trying to hide from keith when they get back to the bench exactly yep. they're like oh man we got we let one in now we got to go get one right and then like the five, like the five-minute power play, the the five-minute major that was actually from the Zach Hyman injury, on the kneeing on Alex Edler, like that was a broken play where Austin Matthews took a swing at it and it kind of chipped over the goalie. Um, not exactly a setup, not exactly <laughs> the most uh, exciting way to score, and not exactly a way to build the most confidence is to have your best player kind of get a lucky one. So, I think when you look at the Leafs, like their talent suggests that they should score more. And I think that they should definitely be better. And it's disappointing to see that because it's something to worry about going into the playoffs. Special teams are extremely important. 
they can turn the tide of a season or turn the tide of the playoffs. Like if you're if you get really really hot on the penalty kill, all of a sudden you're not necessarily as afraid to take penalties and you can play more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Or if you get really really hot on the power play, then you can you know kind of ride that power play, and make the other team pay, and, and get through a, a tough series. But if you don't have those special teams going like power play penalty kill, it's going to be a problem. So. I, I think it's confidence because there's no shortage of talent on this team. Not at all. I mean, when you have four forwards almost making up half your cap, I would hope that hey. you're going through. Following up with that actually as well, I is is Nylander still in COVID? What's no you, okay? You know so what's going on with Nylander? So what happened with Nylander is that he was with somebody who came in contact with somebody who tested positive. So, so Nylander, friend of a friend. Of friend, a friend, friend of a friend. Of a friend. <laughs> so it was a friend of a friend of a situation. Yeah. So, so there's. There's some rumors that maybe Nylander wasn't being as safe as he probably should have been, you know, because the NHL players outside of, you know, playing games on the road, they kind of have to be locked in their hotels for yep. the most part, right? So maybe there's a there was a situation where Willie Nylander left the hotel for a reason mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and hang out with somebody, and then that somebody came in contact with somebody who had COVID. So it was a precautionary reason why, because they weren't sure if it was like, the person that Nylander was with tested mm-hmm. positive. Eventually, that person did eventually find out they tested negative, and Nylander was able to come back. So he's been back for a few games, and then he missed a meeting and almost got benched. <laughs> and it's an interesting specimen, that one. You know, I, I, I really like to relate him with Jonathan Duran. Oh, man. Where they have so much skill and so much potential locked in, but they only show up when they want to. Mm. They're only there when they want to. I'm sorry. I can say this for Duran. I'm sure you can say it for Nylander. Where's the back checking? Where are you at? I mean, yeah, like, Nylander is not known for his defense. There's <laughs> <is> Duran. <laughs> Though, would you don't... put Alex Galchenyuk in that category, too? Yes. And purely because I don't think a guy can jump between so many different teams without having something be wrong. Yeah. Now, in I always like Galchenyuk. I was kind of upset that we did trade him because I know, you know, he's coming off of 30 goals. Everything didn't look great. But then we had Domi. Domi had a career year. That mm-hmm. was awesome. And then since then, he's kind of fallen off a cliff. He's gone through Minnesota, through Pittsburgh, through Arizona, Ottawa, and now he's on Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so going through six teams in the span of, what, a year and a half, I believe? Two years, I think. Um, yeah. That's, so no, that's so I, I'm happy good. for him that he's having success, which this is the last stand. If you can't score with guys like Matthews and Marner, <laughs> yeah. then you don't belong in the NHL anymore. You know, there's there's... Unless you're Scott Sabrin, as we were talking before this, who <laughs> likes to run over my Laval Rockets, goaltenders. Um, we will come back to that rabbit trail later. Yes. Um, but anyways, yeah, there, there is that, that issue. But in saying that there's that similarity between Duran and Nylander, they don't necessarily need to do that. Mm-hmm. You have players who will do that. You mentioned Hyman. I have my Gallagher. Mm-hmm. The same guys that do the same things that will get in the hard-nosed areas mm-hmm. and do the hard things, so that way the skill guys can actually come up and do something with it. Right, but for me, the, the issue is not everybody needs to be a two-way forward, obviously, but the thing is scoring goals at the NHL level is not just you're going to one-on-three, one-on-four your way past everybody. Unless and, you're Connor McDavid. Unless you're Connor McDavid. <laughs> Sorry, right, but... but He's the only one that can do He's that. He's the only one that can do that. He's special. And Pavel Datsuk before him. But anyways, yes. oh. my point, though, being is that attention to detail matters a lot more at the highest level of, of sport than it does at the, the lower levels. And 
granted, even though I haven't specifically watched much of Druan and I haven't specifically watched much of Nylander, I have seen a fair bit of Johnny Gaudreau. And we now we talked about Calgary's issues at length in a previous episode a few weeks ago. But I just bring up Gaudreau to say that it, it really is a mental thing, kind of like you were saying, Tyson, in a different context, is that a, Johnny, a player like Johnny Gaudreau, when the puck's not going in the net for him, when he's holding the puck, trying to make plays, and it's not working out for him, mm-hmm. he doesn't seem willing or able to lock in and do the little things to help his team in less noticeable but still meaningful ways, right? There's, there, you don't have to be Patrice Bergeron. You don't have to be Jonathan Taves, and obviously guys like that are very special for a reason, but I think for guys like Druan and guys like Gaudreau and guys like Nylander, the thing is, it's kind of a mindset of, listen, the puck's not going in for me. Listen, I'm not going to be able to dance past these defensemen every single time. Listen, I'm not beating the goalie with my shot so far through this game. Am I willing to, if not back check hard, put myself in a good position to take a breakout pass? When I'm in the neutral zone, instead of trying to lug it in myself, make one more pass so that my line mate can can skate it in and we can get something going, right? And when you are in the offensive zone, you can't let yourself get frustrated. Things happen very quickly in the NHL, and a split-second lapse in concentration could be the difference between a bumper one-timer that scores and you whiffing on the puck or the goalie having an extra second to respond to mm-hmm. it. So that's just my two cents as... Certainly not a hockey expert, but someone who's watched hockey for a long time and someone who has essentially looked into and read about, well, okay, what makes what makes plays, right? And mm-hmm. what makes what differentiates success from failure at the highest level? And I'm sure you gentlemen would agree it is far more than just raw talent at this point. It really is. I mean, you know, again, we were talking before the show about TJ Brody. His name came up. Mm-hmm. And... You know what doesn't show up on the stat sheets is the breakout pass. Yeah. And TJ Brody is very, very good at that. Mm-hmm. Very, very incredible. But that's just it. You can't have raw talent. You need to have some sort of other element, whether it's that aggression, that bit of, I mean, the cliche that everybody knows, you lose it last week as well, is the sandpaper. It's the grit. It's the, it's mm-hmm. you, that puck, sometimes the dump and chase is the only way you're going to get things in. you got to get the puck in deep. you got to get these guys tired. Mm-hmm. So you can cycle things around, you know. Um, speaking from Montreal's perspective, specifically on the power play as well, um, teams know that Montreal does not cycle the puck very well. Mm. And so with that, you, it happens all the time where they will box out and they will have such high-intensity pressure to get the puck out of the zone. Let me tell you, Montreal's power play is just a skating drill. They get in the zone, it comes out. They get in the zone, it comes out. They get in the zone, it comes <laughs> that out. That reminds me of the Calgary power play of the oh, mid-2010s boy. that I never want to go back to. This is the, the power Toronto play power we've play had. Now? We have the Toronto power play now. You know, so, I mean, I was not making fun of your statistics. <laughs> just bringing up your numbers. But my numbers haven't been great either. <laughs> in March, Montreal had the best power play in the NHL. Okay. 33%. That's really nice. It was incredible. DeFoley was going, which... He's incredible. Thomas Tatar was going. Everything was going well. Petrie was racking up the points. He's been a monster this He's year. He's been so good for us. And then Darnell Nurse is like, yeah, hey, i got more goals than you guys now. Thanks. Um, <laughs> April, 
Can you take a guess what the power play percentage is for Montreal in mm. April? Second worst, because only Buffalo is worse. No, only Toronto's worse. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm going to say, mm, let's go 17%. Try 7.9%. Oh, boy. <laughs> Literally horrendous. They have, they, going, before they scored the power play goal last night, they were 1 for 26. So wow. So, not looking great. Before that, they were okay. Not quite, uh, you know, 2 for 46, but... Um, <laughs> It's 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 just something that gets under your skin and gets through that. And a lot of that factor comes to me, okay, how much of this is the absence of Brennan Gallagher? Hmm. Um, some a guy who again will be in front of the net. He's only five foot eight. But boy can he screen a goal. He goaltender. doesn't care that he's five he, foot eight. He fights for position. He, he plays so much bigger than he is. He plays so much bigger. That's why every year he leads Montreal in goals, is because you look at look go to YouTube and type up Brendan Gallagher goal highlights. They're all just tips and stabbing it in, and they're not nice. They never are. He graduated from the Patrick Hornquist school of scoring yes. goals in the NHL. He, every goal he has, he deserves because he has worked so hard for that. So another stat with this as well. Actually, I'm going to... Oh, yeah. Hit me uh, before, just before you move on with this, I wanted to sag back into that Joel Edmondson plus yes. minus thing. But instead of... Dropping it in cold, I want to invite you to talk about something else we were going to discuss on the show because it's, it more naturally comes up that way. Jake Allen and the lack of run support that he's getting. You know, it is very frustrating because there's many times watching this season I have thought to myself, man, we do not deserve Jake Allen, which <laughs> I've been saying about Carey Price for years. Um, and you don't, but and you we know, don't. it's okay. <laughs> um, you know, we brought Jake Allen in to help Carey Price, but it's this unfortunate paradox where they don't play for him and I don't understand what happens what goes on and you know even Caden Primo played over the weekend uh, he's our prospect goaltender he's going to be the number one eventually but he came in and Montreal did the same thing when Jake Allen is in net for Montreal they average less than two goals per game wow that's scoring. not good enough that you you can't expect your goalie to, to do sub one you can't. It is impossible. And it's not even from the offensive perspective, but the defense, like, everything falls off. And I watch these games, and I just wonder what happens. And, you know, it's unfortunate because Jake Allen has this run where he's literally got these great numbers, a 930, 940, 950 save percentage, but he's losing every game. Hmm. He's won two in his last 11 because Montreal just does not translation a lot of one goal and two goal losses a lot of one goal and two goal losses mm -hmm. and then a sprinkling of five nothing from winnipeg in there you know it's from toronto and we'll see the last game <laughs> we'll see so it's it is unfortunate but in, if montreal doesn't do that then it comes through if jake allen has a bad game which he's had one or two and he's very much entitled to have that montreal needs to have his back and they don't um you know there, that game I just mentioned specifically, a 5 nothing loss, Jeff Petrie, one of our best defensemen, was a minus 5 in that game. Mm. Now, Which, he's been having an unreal year. He's been well. having an unreal, absolutely. In the beginning, there was con he was in Norris conversation constantly, not because of purely his points, but he was leading defensemen in goals and points, and everything was going well for him, but his defensive play was looking incredible as well. Um, but the defensive play actually falls better on his partner, Joel Edmondson. Mm -hmm. who, my goodness, that's one of the acquisitions I mentioned earlier who we got in free agency, and he has been stellar for us. Um, 
Now, time to maybe fact check this and see if it's correct. So, Joel Edmondson, now the reason why I invited you to talk about Jake Allen and this lack of run support the Leaf, sorry, the Habs have been experiencing is because it is directly related to the issue of plus minus. Now, plus minus is a controversial statistic. Really is. It is something that should be contextualized, and that's what we're trying to do. And also, it relates to the amount of goals being scored, which is why I asked you to talk about Jake Allen and this lack of scoring before we bring it back to Joel Edmondson. Now, once more, for those who don't understand what plus minus is, every time you are on the ice when you or your teammate scores a goal, that you get plus one. And every time you're on the ice when the other team scores while you're on the ice, you don't have to have made a mistake that led to the goal. You just have to be on the ice when the goal goes in. You get a minus. And so essentially Hang what... On. Not including power play or shorthanded. So power play... Oh, interesting. Power I, didn't, plays, I didn't know that. So plays, special teams are excluded from that. Yeah, they don't count. So if you get a power play goal, it's not a plus one. If you're killing a penalty and you get and they let in, it's not a minus one. Thank you. So five on five performance yeah. specifically. Now, the reason why this is a controversial stat statistic is because... Just like I said, a lot of things can happen in the game of hockey. You could be the winger doing your job at the top of the zone waiting to take a breakout pass. Your defenseman coughs it up and it leads to a slot shot that goes in. That's not your fault, right? And this can happen a lot in hockey. So by itself, plus minus is not a definitive stat when it comes to evaluating performance of a player. But when we get very significant differentials in plus minus, particularly relative to the amount of points a player is themselves scoring and contributing to their own plus minus, that's where the conversation becomes a little interesting and Edmondson fits in. So finally, here's after all this context, here's the actual fact check. Joel Edmondson is tied for third currently as of Tuesday morning, a plus 26 with Shea Theodore and Mark Stone, But here is the thing. Shea Theodore, who is a mobile, talented defenseman for the Vegas Golden Knights, has scored 40 points himself, plus 26. Mark Stone, one of his Vegas teammate, one of the Knights' best offensive threats, 53 points, leading in part to his plus 26. Joel Edmondson, however, if you know hockey and you watched the Blues a few years ago, he is a pure stay-at-home big physical shutdown defenseman who takes care of his own end and this is what makes this impressive 11 points plus 26 that i personally believe that yes plus minus is an iffy stat by itself but when this happens when you only score 11 of your own points and you are a plus 26 tied for third in the entire nhl you are doing something right particularly on a team that doesn't score a lot Absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, I mentioned earlier in the season, Montreal was averaging just under five goals a game, which was... A lot. (laughs) Unrealistic to maintain for the season. And two and a half of those goals a game were to Foley. (laughs) Exactly. What a season he's having. But I go through and I look at it now, and Montreal's dropped off, and they're in the bottom percentile of the NHL now with their goals per game. Uh, I'm not sure the exact stats, but I know the last time I saw it, it was under two goals a game again. And that's just not going to fly. No. Um, that may work when you get to a playoff atmosphere, but you need to get to the playoffs first, and that's the most <laughs> important thing for it. So 
Um, you know, having, again, I said we don't deserve Jake Allen, we don't deserve Joel Edmondson because he's someone who does not snow up on the stat sheet every night, but my goodness, is he doing so much behind the scenes that and you don't and, see. And it's very impressive, the trajectory of his development as a player, because in t- 2017, 2018, 2019, when he was playing with the St. Louis Blues, he was a number six, number seven sometimes defenseman who wasn't always able to stay in the lineup come playoff time, oftentimes the Blues would swap him out with Robert Bertuzzo, another big physical defenseman, but he really was, for the most of his time in in St. Louis, he was not near the top four. He was not a Jay Bomeister. He was not a Petrangelo, certainly. He was not a Colton Pareko, although he did play five of seven games in the 2019 Stanley Cup Final when the Blues won, but Again, to go to from that to a place where not only is he an NHL regular now, but he is really been one of the most reliable defensemen in the NHL by certain metrics is is very is very very impressive and and props to him and he's definitely seems to be coming into his own still on the right side of 30, 27 years old. Before we move on to the rest of the Leafs uh, hab stuff, I just wanted to sort of finish out this plus minus discussion because we're here we might as well tell the folks who number one and number two and plus minus in the nhl are and i again i think that this is a bit of a detour but a bit of an interesting conversation because again the difference between those two second in the nhl in plus minus uh is someone that we probably recognize his name is leon dreisaitl plus 27 now that's not bad until you consider the fact that he scored 66 of his own points and Tyson, you and I were actually talking about this before the show. Leon Dreisaitl is not that good defensively. And he's gotten no. better this year, but he certainly is nowhere near uh, even what an Austin Matthews has become now. He is a pure offensive forward. And yeah, plus 27 is great, but 66 of your own points. By the way, that's 66 in 46 games. He's scoring at a torrid pace. That's definitely pumping up those tires a little bit. The first... So rather, the first place candidate in plus minus, however, as of uh, Tuesday morning, would gentlemen like to take a guess who that is? I already know. <laughs> ah, yes, because okay. you checked because take it away, you're then. sneaky. <laughs> it's Alec Martinez. L.A. Kings, no former way. Stanley Cup winning defenseman Alec Martinez. He's on now, Vegas now. First of all, the fact that Vegas has three guys in the top six of plus minus, it's a bit of an interesting thing something. to take note. They're a pretty good team. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Alec Martinez, 26 points, plus 28. He is, he is doing a lot of the right things on the ice, by, if this is any indication. And he's certainly been very reliable in his own end. And it's just, it, it's just something that's, that, that I find interesting to think about when it comes to, to how this works, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's just a small little tangent here. Um, mentioning the name Alec Martinez, I won't forget, it's probably one of my favorite Stanley Cup winning goals. Mm. The Alec Martinez goal. That's a good one. But also my heart breaks for Henrik Lundqvist in that one. But I just wanted to bring mm. that up and say, you know, seeing... The, the, I was definitely rooting for the Rangers that year. Yes, absolutely. But seeing, there's nothing like seeing an overtime goal to clinch a series at home. You know, it's going through that. But anyway, sorry. I'll let you move on and see what you got for... Well, so here's what I want to talk about. Like, you mentioned Jonathan Drouin. And I okay. remember there was a press conference here with Jonathan. Now, John, for those of you who may not know, Jonathan Drouin is tied on the Habs for this most paid forward on the team. 
and he only has two goals this year. Now, mm. he was on a press conference, and somebody asked Jonathan Drouin, and they asked him, so how, how has it been, like, you're struggling to score goals? And his response was, uh, there's another stat category just to the right of it if you want to look. And those were his assist numbers. Now, he has 21, is it 21 assists? Uh, let me just check. Uh, oh, where is it? Points. And he has 21 assists. Why? Why has? How? Okay, how do you respond to that? I will put it to you like, like given this. the fact that this is not a 41-year-old Joe Thornton we're talking no, about. No. This split is fairly unusual. See, the unfortunate thing with Jonathan Duran, you look at. So we acquired Jonathan Duran in a trade for Mikhail Sergachev. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Duran was was the third overall pick in 2013. So. He had high expectations, and you know what? He ran with them. He played on a line with Steven Stamkos uh, in Tampa Bay, and let me tell you, he tore up his, his rookie season. He played really well. He had multiple Calder votes, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Carry that into the playoffs as well. That was the year McKinnon also was very good, and he won the Calder. Yeah, McKinnon, uh, he's a pretty good player, you know? Yeah. Uh, so. No McKinnon on my team. He was, you know, we got we got him in a trade. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, nothing against Duran, uh, but you know, Sergeyev has a cup now, so it's uh, <laughs> Sergeyev has also turned into one of a, a very, very, very a good very reliable defenseman. and steady defenseman as well. So <laughs> Duran had this expectation, and you know, it was a it was a hometown feel good story. He's a Quebec boy coming back to Quebec, mm-hmm. playing for the team he watched growing up. Very similar to the whole Wayne Train story. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. You know, things were going well. The unfortunate thing is the Montreal fan base is unforgiving, and it sure is. This is this is what doesn't make sense to me is there's no fans in the building, so there's not added pressure. Mm-hmm. Montreal has one of the worst home records going back for the last couple seasons now because they like playing away from Montreal. Because the thing about Montreal fans is you can't fool them. Mm. They know what's going on, you know. And with that, I've seen Jonathan Drouin have about, I believe, seven or eight breakaways this year. Oh. He scored on two of them. Two of his goals are breakaway goals. And he only has two goals. So... <laughs> he is, and you get to this point where you just need to get one. And, you know, even the last couple of games he was playing in, he's doing what he wouldn't do normally. He's in front of the net trying to whack the puck in, and he's missing it. Mm. He's doing these things unnaturally for himself. And so I look at it as Duran is a very slick, nice, playmaking winner. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he's, he has, so he did have 27 goals. Mm-hmm. That's why everything looked incredible. Everything looked great. He has all this potential. But it all came back down on him when you look at, okay, now he's got two goals, but he's setting up the right plays. He's doing things right. I think, unfortunately, with Duran, I don't expect him to score more, but his contract would suggest suggest that he needs to score more. Mm. Because when you see, oh, man, he's making, wow, that's a big number. Yeah. Oh, for two goals. (laughs) Those are some expensive goals. (laughs) Not as expensive as Jeff Skinner's goals, mind you, but they're, oh my. <laughs> they're very expensive goals nonetheless. Yeah. So it, it was a very tough situation. And what, what I will say is that when you're talking about Duran and his lack of success in the goal-scoring department and the fact that the puck is just not bouncing his way right now, you know who it reminded me of? Hmm. Rick Nash in the 2014 playoffs were at the, this... Now, for the record, Rick Nash is retired now, but he, he was a former number one overall pick, 40-goal power forward when in his game, when in his prime, 
And when he went to the New York Rangers, they expected him to be a top three forward on that team. No doubt about it. Nash scored only 10 points and only three goals in 25 playoff games, which was that deep run that Alec Martinez ended up sending the Rangers home with that goal you were talking about. And this became a real topic of discussion that year, I remember, was that what is what's wrong with What's wrong with Rick Nash? Why is the puck not going in the net for him? Is he washed up? You can't be paying him $7.8 million, I think it was, per year for him to give you 10 points in 25 games in the playoffs. It's not not good enough. And those are some really darn expensive goals when they come. Now, the counterpoint to that narrative, which interestingly enough draws back to some of my earlier comments about effort and doing little things, Rick Nash, at the end, by the end of his career, the last few years, became a, a very good two-way winger. He learned to he learned to play in his own zone. He learned to play all 200 feet back and forth. He was on the first penalty kill unit and the first power play unit during this playoff run in particular, and for the bulk of his career in New York. He was a great veteran presence in the locker room, and he was at least a player who was willing to do those little things for the most part, make the small plays, pay attention to detail to at least help his team mm. in other ways. Now, that year, it didn't end up working out for him. The following year in the playoffs, he scored 14 points in 19 games, which is definitely an improvement. So he, and then essentially his his goal scoring dried off for good because he could not stop getting concussions. There's an interesting full circle moment as well. Concussions ended up ending his career. But that's just... That's just what came to mind when you were talking about Drouin, and I think that from an outsider's point of view, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but from an outsider's point of view, it seems like he maybe could benefit from just maybe having a little bit of that attitude of, hey, there's a, there's another stat category next to goals that you might want to mm. look, because he certainly contributed to offense in a way that, you'd say, Rick Nash was not able to in that playoff run. That's a good thing and like he's definitely he's not gone cold he's definitely still impacting the game and helping goals go in for his team but i think for now he just needs to bear down continue to do the right things shoot the puck but only when it's smart to do so and hopefully it'll turn turn around for him right no that's the truth and mind you right now he is he has been out of the lineup for the last couple games i think just with an illness um i don't know if it's covid related or whatever but uh, that's tough. And, you know, and I have seen he makes an effort. But, again, Jonathan Duran is not what you would call a tough guy or a big guy. Mm-hmm. So when he goes to body check someone like Zach Bogosian, it doesn't work out well for him. <laughs> no, really? But I give him full credit for trying. You know, and that's right. the biggest thing I want to see is I want to see effort. I want to see you put that the – because the, there's one stat category that you can't find any sheet, anywhere, any – Nothing, mm-hmm. and that's your confidence. Yeah. And in every sport, but I think especially with hockey, confidence is a killer. Absolutely. Yes. You mentioned you get hot on a power play, you get hot on a penalty kill, you get hot on anything. You start taking shots you wouldn't normally do. You're gonna run up. You know what? Maybe I am gonna try this little move against this player. I am gonna do something. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing that every night and it's just not working, it's mm-hmm. not working, it's not working. You just need to get. The proverbial monkey off your back, yeah. you know? No, I, I understand what you're saying, and, and I have two Toronto examples. Like, for, for confidence, like, maybe you guys remember when William Nylander held out 
for that contract year that he had. Yes. Because he wanted to get the most amount of money as he possibly could. So he held out, and he held out into the season. Then he signed for a whole bunch of money. And then he was he came back into the lineup without practice training camp in mid-season. And obviously he didn't participate par- play particularly well in the first couple of weeks. So because he wasn't in game shape. And he got roasted he, for it. He got roasted for it. And then he completely lost all of his confidence, and he had his worst year ever as a pro hockey player. Like, not even close. So, like, that's an, an example of a player who really had no confidence, and he had a horrendous year because of it. Now, on the other side, like, John Tavares, he, earlier this year, he was struggling to score. Like, Sheldon Keefe said, oh, he's doing great things defensively for us. He's still setting up players. But John Tavares makes $11 million. He needs to get some points and get some goals here. And, and he's just coming off a 40-goal season. Exactly. Right? Like, and and John Tavares, you know, he's a he's a top center, and he should play like it. And he, you know, his points should probably suggest he's getting paid comparably. So when he's not scoring, it's playing a little bit into his mind. And now this last week or so, he's gone on a on a hot streak here, and he's put in some goals, and he's setting up William Nylander and and Galchenyuk, and he's gotten a lot of points here in the last you know week, ten days or so, and. I saw him yesterday, or not yesterday, two days ago, playing against the Jets. He just absolutely walked Josh Morrissey, just dangled right by him, and, you know, he didn't score on the play. But I go, John Tavares, two months ago, would not have attempted that. But now that he's got all the confidence in the world, he makes that play, and he gets a scoring chance because of it. And one thing that I would like to add about confidence and how fickle it is and how much harder it is to to get back once you've lost it versus what fans might expect let me just give you let me just give you some more numbers going back to that 2014 playoff run where rick nash scored three goals and seven points in 10 games rick nash took 83 shots mm-hmm. in that stretch of time that's a 3.6 shooting percentage and at that point right what what do you do right this is this is a talented forward this was yeah. before the injuries really started to take his goal scoring away for good he has a great shot he has size skill he was this this is not lack of effort right we were talking about effort this is not like 83 shots and three of them went in the back of the net at that point it's you can't blame a guy for letting it get into his head because this means you are doing basically everything. It is bombs away from everywhere. You are you are trying your best to try to score goals to help your team win, and it just isn't happening. And I think that particularly when you're a star player, it might psychologically be even worse. Now, this is just an anecdotal take from me, but I do have a couple of examples that speak to this. Nash is one of them, and like we've established before, former 40-goal power forward, number one overall pick, was paid $7.8 million annually to score goals in game break, essentially, for New York, and it didn't always work out for him that way, and that one playoff run was in particular, he was fighting it. Jake Gensel, on the other hand, is uh, not the biggest name (laughs) in Pittsburgh, and he was a former third-round pick to boot, so no one really expected him to come in and be a top offensive forward, mm-hmm. right? He was drafted because Penguins saw some potential in him. They saw some skill, but they were like, no, it's we'll, we'll pick him when he's available because we think with time he might develop into an asset, but there were certainly not that many expectations on his shoulders. 
because after all the Pittsburgh Penguins have two uh, big centers named Crosby and Malkin that generally shoulder all the expectations in that city but going back to the playoffs in particular and I use the playoffs because this is where not only when the pressure gets higher but the fans and the media are even harsher on you for failing to perform so it adds that angle in the 2017 playoff run which I believe Pittsburgh won the cup that year um, Pittsburgh also played, well, Jake Gensel, rather, he also played 25 games, like Rick Nash. Jake Gensel scored 13 goals, 8 assists, and 21 points in 25 games. Absolutely torrid, especially for a young former third-round pick. That is mm -hmm. pretty darn good. And part of that is not just the physical factor of Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are just occupying defensive attention, giving you open ice, setting you up with great passes and giving you space so you can score. But it is also, I think, that psychological factor. Jake Gensel realized that he's not the big horse in that room. But he realized that because of that, he was able to just go in and play free, right? And, and pardon me, he was able to just do his thing, let the game come to him, and have fun playing with these big superstars. Play on Sidney Crosby's wing. How, how great is that, right? And to bring this point full circle, Jake Gensel took only 52 shots in those 25 playoff games. Wow. Rick Nash took 83. But scoring 13 goals, that is a 25% shooting percentage incredible. versus 3.6. That's, so That's incredible. Pro sports is, is a fickle thing sometimes, and hockey in particular is a fickle thing sometimes. And I, mm -hmm. I make this point just to help, help the listeners sort of realize how big an issue this can be. I think so, and I think confidence is a huge thing, especially for young players, and maybe we can end on this. Uh, Cam, the, the, the Habs have some young players on their roster, you know, uh, Evans and Caulfield and Kakanyemi and Suzuki. Maybe speak a little bit about what you like in them, what you see in them. How do you assess their game, and you think they're going to be any good in the future? Well, the biggest thing I will say, which made me so Other happy... Other than the fact that your fantasy hockey team is literally named Kakanyemi's Mole. Yep, that <laughs> mole is gorgeous, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> the, the one thing that made me super excited, which might sound a bit weird from a fan perspective, but Cole Caulfield made his NHL debut yesterday. Now, Cole Caulfield's pretty incredible. Um, he, grew, uh, he grew up in the States playing and threw up the... He basically played through the U.S., um, hockey leagues and the hockey ranks and um, kind of just gradually worked his way up and he eventually made it to college level uh, before his draft eligibility. Mm. Came through, played some good college pro hockey. Everything looked really great. Everything was going his way. Um, Montreal ended up drafting him 15th overall in the first round pick. Yeah, he was considered to be an elite goal scorer. Considered to be an elite goal scorer, which is very good. They were comparing him to the likes of players like Alex Dabrinkit, yeah. uh, who is also a very recent player, but had a 40-goal season with Patrick Kane on his wing. So um, pretty high praise, if you ask me, um, to go through with that. But uh, the greatest thing that made me happy about Cole Caulfield, mm -hmm. um, he came out and he did nothing wrong yesterday. Did he score any goals? No. Did he get any assists? No. He had a few shots on net, and he was a plus. And he avoided being murdered by Milan Lucic. And Sutter was trying to get Lucic to get rid of him. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's unfortunate that, uh, for David, I guess, that that didn't happen. But, <laughs> you know, uh, it's quite good. Um, to talk about some other ones, Jake Evans is someone who I don't think gets enough recognition. You know, he's not as flashy. He doesn't do all those big things. 
but he's someone who has become steady for us. Uh, Jake Evans has only had one goal this year, and it was shorthanded. Mm. Which, by the way, in their stat category, Montreal leads the NHL in shorthanded goals this season with nine, which is pretty incredible. That's really good. Considering they had seven in their first 15 games, I think it was. Um, but obviously they got up. Now, Jake Evans is someone who he's going to go in, he's going to win you a faceoff, he's going to kill penalties, he's mm-hmm. going to play. In the last two minutes of a game, you have this young presence mm-hmm. that is killing off those crucial final minutes. In the 2-1 victory over Calgary that just happened very recently, which felt like a very much like a playoff game, Jake Evans was taking these draws. Now, again, very impressive. He, he doesn't show up on the stat sheet. He doesn't have the... I mean, his face-off record isn't anything amazing either. It's no Philip Deneau, Claude Giroux, Sean Couturier face-off percentage. Or Bergeron. Or Bergeron. My goodness, he's good. He's got like a million selkies. But um, <laughs> he's someone that I can rely on. And, you know, he's 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 growing into his own, and he's getting these things, and he's doing the, these things right. Now, Kotkaniemi is someone who I think was tough because he got drafted third overall. Montreal's never drafted higher than third overall in NHL history, because we've been so good, I guess. That's the <laughs> way to look at it, you know. Edmonton with your four overall picks in, like, ten years or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Fun fact, Calgary has never drafted above fourth overall. Really? Sam Bennett is Sam the, Bennett is the highest draft right. pick you've ever since, had. Since 1980. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's rough. It, had, it kind of a, is. I mean, we've had three, two third overall picks. Mm-hmm. Alex Galchenyuk. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, it's a, fickle, it's, it's a fickle game. It's a fickle game, and and but anyways, Kakanyemi, he came through. He had a great rookie season. Eleven goals, over thirty points, mm-hmm. looking promising. There's this thing that you guys might have heard of called the sophomore slump that everyone has yes. gone through, and they've heard these things. Thankfully, Certainly. it hasn't affected Nick Suzuki whatsoever. Mm. But with Kakanyemi, he came out and. They rushed him too much, mm-hmm. which is something that we've seen some teams do particularly. I'm sorry to keep ragging on Edmonton, but they did it with Pugliarvi. They did. They really Very did. poorly. And the Finnish Elite League, which using Pugliarvi as the example of Kakanyemi, is very different from the NHL. Mm-hmm. Different than the, than the National League. Different than the KHL. It's its own breed of medicine. Different than the AHL minor Kakanyemi yeah. was literally lighting up the Finnish League, the Finnish Elite League. And, and it's So there was this pressure on him. Mm-hmm. So things didn't go well. He lost his confidence. He stopped shooting the puck. He, he was turning over pucks. He was doing things wrong. So what do they do? They finally send him down to Laval. Mm-hmm. Goes to Laval. Has had a 10-game point streak. Mm-hmm. He was scoring. He was putting up these numbers. Things were great. Unfortunately, in Laval, he had an injury where he had hyperstenitis growing or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a lower body injury. Okay. Not good. Montreal season was terrible. Mm-hmm. Everything was in the garbage. Mm-hmm. But then that's when we, the aforementioned 24th team snuck in. Kakaniemi comes up. And guess who scored the first goal in the first game for us against Pittsburgh? Eric Stahl. Just kidding. <laughs> yes, was... Barry Kotkaniemi. Nice. And it was off his face. And it was glorious. <laughs> and you know what? Goal scorer's goal. Mm. Him and Suzuki, uh-huh. they pulled that team. They let us. They had six goals each in the playoffs. They absolutely did. They li- even the last game where we got eliminated, Suzuki didn't want us to lose. He scored two goals in that game, mm-hmm. but we let him down, unfortunately. But Kakaniemi, he's come through and he's he's put on the pounds. He's six foot three. He's over 200 pounds. He's a big kid, but he's still only 
22. He's mm. still a kid. Mm-hmm. So he's got a lot of hockey left in him. But my goodness, once he gets that full potential, I'm looking forward to it. He's getting better on faceoffs. He's getting better defensively. And he's putting up points. That's why my team is Kakanyemi's mold. And gentlemen, you know, I'm sorry to cut this short, but I'm sure we could be here all night talking hockey if we wanted to. But I think for the sake of time, I'd like to wrap this up just with a quick a little anecdote and then uh, move on to move on to our next topic, which I think will end up being a little bit more concise, shall we say, than, than it was. But mm-hmm. we were just talking a little bit earlier about drafting, right, and how some guys work out, some guys don't, and... Tyson, you and I were talking about the 2015 NHL entry draft this week, and this is what I would like to end off on, and it actually is an excellent transition into our next topic, but folks, frankly, drafting is a crapshoot in in every sport. It's very hard to ultimately predict whether or not even talented young players will succeed at the professional level. Sometimes, you know, you get Connor McDavid's and Sidney Crosby's and Alex Govechkin's that end up being slam dunks, but outside of that, you have a lot of very talented players like Galchenyuk's and even sometimes like a Jonathan Druin, who, or a Sam Bennett for sure, who for some reason they just fail to reach the level that they were expected to be at. And this is a, this is a tough, it's a tough thing to do. So anyways... With that being said, Boston Bruins had three first-round picks in 2015, two acquired via trade, number 13, 14, and 15. And they drafted Jakob Zaboral, Jake DeBrusque, and Zachary Seneshin. Now, to, for, for some context, Jakob Zaboral is only playing in the NHL because that Bruins defense corps has been decimated by injuries. Jake DeBrusque serviceable top nine forward, but nothing too special. Zachary Seneshin is buried in the minors. The next three players that went off the board, are you guys ready for this? Yes. We already know, but oh. Matthew Barzell, Kyle Connor, Thomas Shabbat. Oh. Man, would you be kicking yourself? Because imagine if you had you had them lined up. All three. Bang, bang. But this is the, you don't have future sight. This is the no, difference yeah. here. You know, it's... yeah. I, um, I remember in the draft, like, the Jakob Zaboral pick was a little bit off the board. Yeah. That was a little bit of an interesting one. It was like the Gabrikov draft yeah. in his last one, where the literally there were the analysts were scrambling. He's like, oh, he's a forward from Russia. Um, <laughs> um, because he was literally slated to go, like, in the seventh round. Yeah. So. And anyways, that's that's just to put a capper on our very lively hockey panel. And you know what? This is this was a lot of fun, guys. We definitely need to do a few more of, of these. But for the interest of time, I got to do my job and move us on. And I think that we're going to call an audible here, pun intended, and we're going to strip down our, uh, our next topic, which is related to the NFL draft. Guess what? But with the draft being this Thursday, I figure... We will try to spend the bulk of our, our draft analysis and our draft reactions next week. Mm-hmm. But tonight, one thing I did want to talk about, because this is a very highly anticipated and highly debated question in the NFL right now, is will Mac Jones go at number three to the San Francisco 49ers, who I believe traded up to acquire this pick, right? They traded up sure. from 12 yes. to acquire this pick, and there's... You know, there's some people, there's a lot of mock drafts these days that are putting him there, but there's also a lot of pundits and fans who are saying this would be a gross reach 
for a player that is at best a late first round and potentially even a second round talent. But why don't we jump right into this? Matt Jones, youngest of three, raised in Jacksonville. His family members all played college sports, fun fact. His mom and sister played tennis. His brother played soccer. His dad actually went pro in tennis after a college career in that category. But, of course, he chose football. Unlike our friend Jalen Phillips earlier on, he was only a three-star recruit. And he joined the Alabama Crimson Tide the same year as, you might have heard of him, Tua Tagovailoa, mm-hmm. five stars. And Tua Tagovailoa was a highly touted quarterback who obviously started for Alabama until November 2019 when he was brutally injured on a sack. And that's when Matt Jones took over as the starter. At the beginning of last season, the 2020 season, there was questions as to whether Jones would even beat out his backup Bryce Bryce Young, I think it was, and, and he managed to do so. And he truly rolled tied that year. I have been waiting a long time to use that pun, by the way. <laughs> Listen, Matt Jones truly rolled tied last year. He threw 41 touchdowns against just four interceptions in the 13 games he played in. Wow. He is so far the only Alabama quarterback to reach 4,500 passing yards in one season. And, mo- and perhaps most impressively for all, he set an all-time record for NCAA completion percentage, 77.4% of his passes as the Crimson Tide juggernaut, capped an undefeated season with the 18th National Championship in program history, blah, blah, blah. There are a lot of fans that are not happy about that because college football is rife with intense rivalries, every bit as heated as Habs leaps. Now, let's actually talk about Mac Jones and why there's actually controversy around him going as a top five pick because if I throw you these numbers in a vacuum, you're gonna go, wow. This guy's going to be a playmaker in the NFL for sure, right? Well, there's a lot of important context here that we need to explore before we can make that analysis, and let's start by doing that. Mac Jones' strengths, the the completion percentage flies off the page at you, and this owes to, to actually three things, I'll say. His accuracy, his ball placement, and his decision-making, and it's, there's there's nuanced differences here between the three of those. Accuracy, he certainly can thread the needle, Right, He can make difficult throws, but decision-making, he understands when to throw it into a tight window and when to just look for another receiver. Mm-hmm. He was able to do this quite successfully in his final college year. He does not have exceptional arm strength, but he is nonetheless a great deep ball thrower. Here are his stats last year on throws of 20-plus yards, which is considered a deep ball. 58.6% completion rate, 34 for 58 on the deep stuff. 17 touchdowns, two interceptions. He he aired it out, and he wow. and he, you know he gave Devonte Smith and Jalen Waddle until he was injured plenty of plenty of go routes to have fun on. Oh yes, right. And on tape, we see Mac Jones anticipating where his receivers will be compared to how the defense is playing coverage on that particular play, which leads him to being very successful at all three levels of the field. And this is the third thing that I want to talk about: ball. Now, to the untrained eye, you might think, oh, accuracy, ball placement are synonyms, right? Not really. Here's the difference. Accuracy is being able to put the ball where you want it, all right? That is, hey, I intend to throw the ball in that spot, and I'm able to throw it there. Ball placement is the ability to understand where you should put the ball before it comes out of your hand, right? One is, that's my target, and I can hit the target. The second one is, I understand that... I should target my receiver's back shoulder on this play, but not that one. 
I should throw this receiver open because he's going to break and get out of the zone, so on and so forth. Mac Jones has both of these, at least at the college level, and overall his decision-making has been very solid. To some extent, he also has what we call pocket presence. Now, Cam used to play a bit of offensive line in high school. You under you understand that when the quarterback is just just freelancing back there, it makes your job as an offensive lineman very hard because you can no longer cut angles and the pass rusher can just get around you. Isn't that the case? This is the truth. You know, and I will say with the quarterback, he's the only one that ever gave us any recognition because he knows night in, night out, we're the one covering his butt. <laughs> you know? Very true. Very. But if you got someone who's active in the pocket and they're doing the, it becomes difficult because you have to move with him. The pocket has to move around. And mm. that's what your linebackers are for. They're going to notice things are breaking apart and they're going to find a hole. Absolutely. Now, the thing is with Mac Jones, he is very good at subtle and measured movements in the pocket. He doesn't panic when the pass rush comes close, but he's able to he's able to feel where the rushers are coming from, even if he's not directly looking at them. And rather than just void a viable pocket, rather than just take off as his first instinct, he will slide a couple steps to his right, just get that pass rusher out of his face, the offensive lineman can continue to cut a favorable angle for him, and he can just kind of slide back and forth for several seconds if need be, and this is also a great trade, and he's very poised in the pocket as a result. High character guy as well, for the most part, because look, he competed with higher-end QBs like Tagovailoa and Jalen Hurts throughout his entire career in a situation where a lot of other prospects in college would simply have transferred schools to sort of get an easier... Uh, shot at the starting position. He did it. He grinded it out, and he earned it the hard way. He also earned two degrees in four years in Alabama. He took three years to get a business communications undergrad, 4.0 GPA on that, by the way, and a master's in sports hospitality in 2020. So we know that he works hard in all areas of his life, and that's a great trait to have for, honestly, any employee. You don't have to be an athlete. Just sometimes, yeah, work ethic... Well, I shouldn't say sometimes, it always matters. Scouts definitely love his character, and now I will say that the one blemish on Mac Jones's record is a 2017 arrest due to a DUI and driving with a fake license. But other than that, he's been fairly spotless. You know, time will tell if that is a one-off mistake by a young man or something more. Weaknesses, on the other hand, like I alluded to before, Mac Jones has, Tyson would say, average at best arm strength. Mm-hmm. Right, he, he can throw with velocity when he can just step, set his feet and step into it and hit the end of his drop and just weight transfer. But if you make him throw off balance, his passes tend to flutter, fall short of the mark. There was multiple times last year where Alabama receivers had to come back to the ball on a deep route because he wasn't quite able to put enough feet on it. He's certainly not a Patrick Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers who can launch at 60 yards with a flick of the wrist or from off-balance positions. Uh, Six foot three, 217 pounds, fairly average size, I would say. I don't, I don't think that's a, that's a big talking point either way. The other knock on Jones is he's not one of these newfangled dual-threat running quarterbacks. He ran a 4.82 40-yard dash, and that really reflects that. He's average speed by NFL standards, and he lacks the quickness as well to consistently evade defenders or gain chunks of yardage on the ground. Now, having said all of that, the biggest question, I think, is whether or not Jones can overcome NFL adversity after playing on the best team in college football. And that really is the context 
that I was alluding to earlier. Last year in the Southeastern Conference, the powerhouse SEC, Alabama, 541.62 total yards per game. Okay, 48.46 total points per game. That's monstrous. They, wow. they, they could not be stopped, frankly. Flor- the Florida Gators were the only team that even gave them a close game in the playoffs, and that was still a shootout both ways. Mac Jones had plenty of help from playmakers like Devontae Smith. You got your Heisman Trophy winning wide receiver. You know, 1,856 yards, 23 TDs, projected top 10 pick. He had Najee Harris, a second-team All-SEC running back, 26 total touchdowns, projected first-round pick. And all those guys made Alabama's other offensive players, they made their lives a lot easier. And plus, we need to say, while Jones does have good pocket presence, he rarely needed to truly scramble or deal with heavy pressure because he played on an offensive line with the likes of Evan Neal, Landon Dickerson, and Alex Leatherwood, Dickerson and Leatherwood are both projected late first round picks. So very, very strong offensive line. Mm. And of course, you cannot discount Nick Saban, the head coach, and Steve Sarkeesian, the former offensive coordinator who was so good and so trusted. He's now the head coach in Texas. Right, there's Alabama was absolutely stacked mm-hmm. from top to bottom. Tyson, you and I have said they might beat the New York Jets in, in a head-to-head <laughs> game. Who knows? All right, and people are talking a lot about whether the 49ers will will draft Mac at third overall. You would say that this would be quite a a reach. Why is that? Yeah, so here, I'm going to give you guys a blind test, okay? I'm going to read you player X draft profile, okay? So this player is very well versed at operating a pro-style offense. So this Mm -hmm. is um, their strengths. Uh, mobile enough to sidestep the first wave, but not necessarily very mobile as a, as, a, as a player. Very good to short intermediate accuracy, evidenced by good accuracy and completion percentage in okay. college. Mm-hmm. Delivers the ball well under duress. Very mature leader, very smart and articulate. Highly competitive leader, very well prepared, and was a national championship winner. Mm-hmm. The weakness was that the player was surrounded by NFL supporting talent. Does not have a big-time vertical arm. Not very athletic, you know, and uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes has to have really good receivers make some really good catches. Mm-hmm. So that those are kind of the weaknesses of this player X. Um, who do you think I just described? Well, I mean, kind of sounds a bit like Mac, but I'm not sure if that's what you're yeah, going that's, with. That yeah, that's we, my guess. We've had, one, we've had a version of this conversation before, <laughs> and I'm just not fully remembering what it is, so it's kind of... I'm going to say that sounds like Mac Jones. Yeah, so you would say that it would sounds like Mac Jones, yeah. right? Yeah, the player that I just described was A.J. McCarron. Interesting. Really? A.J. McCarron, fifth-round pick out of the Bengals, was a back-to-back national championship winner for Alabama. Mm. Yeah, and this is where I think of you know, Mac Jones kind of being as a prospect. I look at him and I go, he had Steve Sarkeesian, which is a very good offensive mind. He had Jalen Waddell. And Devontae Smith. Smith, like you said, very good offensive line. Najee Harris might go in the first round to the Steelers. You know, not a very elite arm, very good and very mature off the field and, and makes good decisions. But, like, to me, I don't see much difference between Mac Jones and A.J. McCarron. I, I don't think he's an elite prospect. He didn't wow me with his tape. He made good passes to Devontae Smith, and Devontae Smith... I had a ton of yak yards this year. Sure. You know? 
a lot like Devonta Smith. He was so good. He would catch a 10-yard pass over the middle of the field and take it 80 yards for a touchdown because he was, so, he was so skilled and Steve Sarkeesian schemed him open. So, like, with a wide receiver, you can get schemed open, but, like, getting a 90-yard touchdown pass on a screen play is different than throwing a 75-yard pass yes. over the middle of the yeah. field beating the safety. There's a difference there. And I think what happened is is that you look at Mac Jones' stats and you go, oh my goodness, he's a winner, he's got all these great stats, he's got a great completion percentage, but I don't I don't like his tape. I think he's I think he's completely overrated. I think of him like like AJ McCarron, and I think that anything over, you know, a second round pick for Mac Jones would be generous. That's where I think mm. that's where I have him. Wow. And you know what? One one other thing that I that I will concede is that if he does go third overall to the 49ers, that's an outdoor stadium, and when the wind starts blowing, his average arm strength might come into play, especially if he's forced to throw from an off balance position. Again, he's not a Rodgers who can doesn't matter. He will put that 60 yards on the target. <laughs> right. And, and I will the other and another thing that I will say is that when you look at the overall talent pool in the first round across all positions, there's a lot. I mean, Smith, Harris, Kyle Pitts, Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddell, Panay Sewell, Patrick Sertan II, Micah Parsons, etc. In addition to the other quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Zach Wilson. <laughs> so, sure, I, I think that when it comes to an overall sort of evaluation of the situation, uh, I, I definitely think you have a point there, and I think that if the 49ers do draft him third overall, it would definitely be way more necessity in the position because, right, mm. 49ers have George Kittle. They're not going to draft Kyle Pitts third overall. They're going to use that draft capital in that way. Well, they, they, <laughs> they traded up for a quarterback. Yes. Like, like they, they traded up a whole bunch of future first-round picks to get this guy that they want here. There's no player that's worth trading multiple first-round picks other than a quarterback just because, you know, quarterback in the NFL can – change your franchise. Wait, I, what about the punter? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, I can, uh, I, I respect the quarterbacks, man. I can't think that fast. No. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. That's why I, mm. that's why I protected him. Mm-hmm. Now, Tyson, I, I definitely think those are valid points to consider, but my counter-argument is that even though Jones is probably not an elite prospect, he is one of the highest four QBs in the draft. I would say maybe him... Like, Lawrence for sure, but Lawrence is the consensus number one overall mm-hmm. pick. When when you look at quarterbacks and you look at highest floor next to Lawrence, I'd say it's Mac. And here's why. He doesn't have elite athleticism. He doesn't have high-end talent or rocket arm or any of these high-end things, like you said. But like I said, you know, he has shown accuracy, ball placement, poise, and decision-making, at least at the college level. And in theory... These kinds of traits can help a young quarterback learn to read a defense and take care of the football, even though the competition will get much, much stiffer at the NFL level. And frankly, we have seen far too many athletic, rocket-armed quarterbacks come to the NFL and underwhelm or outright fail because they can't read a defense and they lack the football IQ necessary to run their offense against NFL schemes and like we said before, Jones, he's proven to be a hard worker on and off the field. He's shown perseverance by gutting it out against Tagovailoa and Hurts and training camps. And he is a guy who I think may be able to fight through adversity in his professional life once the competition gets different, once the, th- the times uh, get tough. 
he's more likely to stick it out based on his past and do his absolute best to work hard and get better versus having attitude issues or looking mm-hmm. for a way out. And we've got to remember, though, the other thing is I think a lot of other people have said something like this, although you didn't now, but a lot of people have said, oh, Mac has played with NFL caliber talent, and so that's why he's so good. But we got to remember, he's not going to a New York Jets. He's not going to a Jacksonville Jaguars that literally need a quarterback to save the franchise. San Francisco <laughs> is only drafting third overall because they were absolutely decimated by injuries last year. Right? And, and they traded up. Well, they did. But when healthy, they've got a good offensive line with Trent Williams, Mike McGlinchey, mm-hmm. and Alex Mack. And in 2019, before all those injuries, they had the number four offense in the NFL, including the number two rushing attack, both in terms of total yardage, 6,900, sorry, 6,097 yards total, number four, and the number two defense too. They allowed just 4,509 yards, right? So he, in theory, like if Bosa and those guys get healthy, he should have a defense that'll help him out. He'll, He'll have George Kittle, a great target to throw to. Debo Samuel may not be Devontae Smith, but he's certainly not bad. And there's a powerhouse Kyle Shanahan run game here that could take some heat off him. And so to conclude my sort of my analysis of this situation, the Athletic projects Jones as a late first round, early second round pick. And I would agree with that in a vacuum. I think that in an ideal situation, you would not take him top 10 given all these, I guess, more proven talents in in the first round but the thing is i believe that jones's specific traits give him a greater chance to succeed as an nfl quarterback compared to many others in this draft like he may not ever be a superstar but he is what i would call a high floor low ceiling prospect and a a relatively safe pick and because the 49ers need a quarterback and they trade it up because they don't want to take any chances I would I wouldn't hate the pick if, if they if they drafted him at three he may not have the ceiling of a Trevor Lawrence for sure or, or Justin Fields but for me it's just I, my view is influenced by just how many glitzy athletic quarterbacks have mm-hmm. failed mm-hmm. in the NFL because ultimately people were overvaluing them for the wrong reasons and if Mac Jones is being overvalued right now, I would argue he is at least being overvalued for the right reasons. And given how, like we've said a few minutes ago, a draft is a crapshoot in any sport, it's a dice I'm it's a dice that I personally would be willing to roll if I am a 49ers fan. And you know, I certainly admit that there's a there's a valid opposing argument mm-hmm. to that, but that's where I stand. I, I disagree. I just do. I think that like you say that he has the highest floor. Um, what is that floor? like backup quarterback for the seven years like if that's his floor like sure like that may be his highest floor like maybe maybe these other guys don't have a high of floor because you know they have that boom bust potential especially a guy like justin fields but or zach wilson but you know why would you draft third overall for the lowest ceiling quarterback it doesn't make sense to me like why would you trade up for mac jones when you could have gotten him at 12 because nobody loved Mac Jones before the draft. Before the 49ers started trading up, that's when all this information out came out that you know the 49ers really like Mac Jones. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I understand that you'd be willing to roll the dice on a Mac Jones, 
I would be much more comfortable rolling the dice on a Justin Fields or even, a, 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 sorry, what's that other guy? Out of Zach North, Wilson, potentially? No, out of North Dakota State. Lance. Trey Lance. Trey Lance. I forgot his first name. Trey Lance. I'd, I'd roll the dice on him 10 times out of 10 before I'd roll the dice on Mac Jones. Just because, you know, if you say the situation in San Francisco is you, as good as you say it is, then the situation in San Francisco would be equally beneficial to Trey Lance as it would be to Mac Jones. Mm. So I think why not take the guy with the most talent, who is also the maturest, who is also one of the more mature quarterbacks. Like Despite he, his youth. Yeah, he's very young, but still very mature. And yeah, he's, he needs a little bit more work. He FCS, he didn't play FBS, but he was still a very good quarterback. And, you know, I would, I would take him with the better talent and the maturity and not a DUI on his record over a guy like Matt Jones. Well, you know, at least uh, at least it's not Christian Ponder, or at least we hope it's not uh, <laughs> Christian Ponder we're talking about here. But no, I think that's a valid point, and I think ultimately what I'd like to end off with is I we seem to be talking about two conflicting philosophies when it comes to investing in a team. You were talking about the boom bust, and I was talking about sort of the high floor situation, and I think that... Well, first of all, I'll say this. Fans are our fickle bunch. Analysts are a fickle bunch that are also wrong all the time. Draft is a crapshoot, and so there's ultimately going to be a ton of chance and circumstance involved in this situation. But, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I think what you're saying is mm-hmm. that if you are going to have high draft picks, solid draft capital available, mm-hmm. essentially you would rather you would r- try to hit a home run and rather strike out doing it, in a sense, mm-hmm. whereas I would put the ball in play to use a, a bit of a baseball yeah. uh, analogy there. And I think that, you know, I think where I'm coming from is kind of like I said, quarterback in particular, extremely volatile position. I guess where my mind goes is that first off the bat is that again, with San Francisco having all these assets, like the run game, the O-line, the defense, uh, to me, I, I think it might be costly to straight up whiff mm-hmm. uh, on a highly touted quarterback because it, even if Mac Jones becomes not little more than a, uh, I don't know, a top 20 game manager type of a quarterback. If you have that run game, if you have that defense, you're still a very competitive team into the playoffs. But if you whiff on someone like uh, like a Trey Lance, and I obviously I, I don't think, I don't ever want to think he's going to bust, but if someone like Trey Lance busts, uh, well, congratulations, you're essentially, you're putting yourself behind the eight ball in a big way. But I, having said that, I would fully uh, validate sort of the conflicting philosophy of, well, if the 49ers are in such a good position, they have a better chance to develop Lance and the payoff is higher. But with that being said, guys, it's time to wrap up a an exciting and uh, probably our longest running episode of the, the season so far. But folks, thank you so much for hanging out with us. And certainly next week and the weeks to hum, we will have plenty of... NFL draft reaction stuff Mm -hmm. and it will be exciting to see where guys like Mac Jones and Trey Lance and a a lot of other talented people where they end up going and what and how people feel about that but until then uh, Cam thank you so much for being with us today Tyson pleasure as always Mm -hmm. my name is David Song saying good day or good night from the draft board